You know, I had a stark reality this week whenever I looked and realized that we only have like two or three weeks left in Judges, and uh, we're, we're coming to the tail end of the book. So last week, we looked at the last part of Samson's life, and uh, Samson was this guy who was gifted by God in so many ways, and yet we see his life just full of defining moments, and those moments not defining God's character, but defining Samson's. He had this ongoing switch in him that just kept pursuing after uh, sinful passions, and he used the gifts that God gave him to accomplish a lot of those sinful passions, whether it was anger or lust or what have you. Samson was the last of the chronological judges. If you were keeping track, which I'm sure all of you have a timeline somewhere in your house that you've charted this whole thing out, right? Right, yeah, I'm sure. So, uh, but as far as the judges are concerned, in chronological order, Samson was the last of that. And so, judges is a, a literary anomaly, if you will, because it, it doesn't follow a systematic approach in how it's written and how it's presented. Uh, some commentators have joked that whenever the editor of the Bible was proofreading all the letters, somehow he missed judges. Uh, not because it's filled with error, but because the flow of it isn't like any other letter that we have. The flow of it starts, if you remember, with two introductions. We have two separate introductions uh, covering things from two different perspectives. Then we get into the narratives or we follow a timeline of judges, and now we're going to get into basically two appendix of it. Basically what that means is we're going to look at specific moments that happened in the timeline we already covered before we get into a dual conclusion. It's, it's, like I said, it doesn't literarily follow some kind of format or, or system. Uh, for some systematic people, judges can be annoying in that regard because they want to try to figure out where 17 through uh, 21 or 22 fit into the whole theme of the book. They want to find out where they fit and then, then, then put them in where they belong. But we don't really know the timeline, and it's given to us this way, so that's the way we cover it, right? The last five chapters to end the Judges, like I said, are just this little different because so far we've had like this 30,000-foot bird's-eye view of what's happening in the Israelite experience in this phase of their history. We've seen them uh, make some bad decisions, and a lot of times we don't know all of the specifics. Here's a phrase that you've heard over and over and over again. We hear the phrase, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or some form of that. Remember that being said time and time again, right? But we don't know what that is. We don't know what that evil is. It's not ever clearly defined when it's given to us in that phrase. So at the end of it, it would say something like, and -and uh, so-and-so, so-and-so reigned or led over Israel for X amount of years, and they enjoyed peace, or it just says that they ruled over them for this amount of years. But then the following phrase starts with something like, and the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or something along those lines, right? But in that is a whole lot of moments that define that phrase. So the phrase is given, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but it never breaks down in specifics what those things are. The last five chapters of the book break some of those specific things down. Basically, there's two main characters, two stories it covers. We're going to get into one this week and next week, and then we're going to close out with the last one. Uh, But this week, um, let me hop back onto my notes so I don't get too far ahead of myself. So uh, it's almost like we have, like I said, a double appendix to the book. Uh, 
But God rescued Israel, and here we are going to see two case studies of this long, uh, this, this kind of like spiritual condition they've put themselves into that they need rescued from. We're going to see how this happened. We're going to get into the story now. Now, the story of the guy we're going to look at this week and next week isn't as uncomfortable as the one in the last week. And the, the progression from 17 to the end of the book shows us that whenever it says the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, it progresses to an uglier and uglier spot as time goes on. And if you were to only read 17 through 22, it, it's, it's a hopeless narrative. It's this, it's this view of humanity without God. And it's so bleak that these passages are rarely preached on or even studied. If you were to get online and do a, uh, a Google search for, uh, for a sermon on Judges 17 through 22, you would find maybe some, but not the abundance that you would find on other passages of Scripture. If you were to say, let's compare, you're going to preach on Judges 17 and 18 or Psalm 23 or John 3, right? There's lots and lots and lots of passages that are preached on over and over and over again, and I'm not criticizing that. They, God's Word needs communicated, but this, this passage that we're going to look at today, it's not, it's, not very, uh, it's not very full of encouraging God moments because this actually, in the timeline of the judges, like I said, it's taking us back in time to one of the reigns of the other judges at the time whenever we get one of these phrases that says, and then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So as that moment is unfolding in one of the judges' timelines, this is what's happening. Does that make sense? So, so this is not a chronological story. This, we're not picking up at the end of Samson's life and then moving forward. We're actually going back in time to a section of one of these judges, and when the moment says the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're going to get an upfront look at what that means. Does that make sense? So most of chapters 17 and 18 revolve around a guy named Micah. We're going to look at just verses 1 through 6. Now, I will say, if you take me up on that Google challenge, you're probably going to find several sermons on this one section, probably based on the same kind of things we're going to talk about today. But as far as the rest of 17 through the end of the book, there's not much uplifting, uh, there, and, and we're, we're going to look at it still. But let's look at this, uh, Judges chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the, the 1,100 pieces of silver and his, to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine 
And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you're like me, the first time I read that, and I look at how the thing got mapped out months ago, I'm going to think to myself the same thing I thought when I got to this passage again. What was I thinking? What, what, what am I going to preach on there? What, I mean, it doesn't even mention the Lord. It's not even in there. But man, the more you study, the more there's so many warning signs to us here. There's so many things that we need to look at here. And I thought it was important for us to take the time to dissect these, just these six verses down a little bit and look at something that I think is important for us to look at. But let's, let me walk through what's happening. In the first few verses, we see that, he, that there's this guy named Micah, and he's from the hill country of Ephraim. And uh, I want to tell you that the word Micah, the name Micah, means who is like Yahweh, meaning the unspoken name of God. It, it, the, the name Yahweh would have been so powerful, so holy, so regarded, that you wouldn't have said the word Yahweh. You would name your son something like Yahweh. So the name Micah means who is like Yahweh. So this guy was named to be like God. So there is a religious understanding of who God is at some level in this home. So he's from the hill country of Ephraim. He stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Now, the other thing we don't know is how old Micah is here, but we do know that he went into his mom's house. He found 1,100 pieces of silver and he stole them. And in the meantime, his mom doesn't know who took them, so she yells out a curse on anyone who stole my silver. Whoever stole my silver will be cursed, she says. Now, he hears the curse. He hears it because at some point, probably over a dinner table or something, she's like, can you believe those young hooligans coming into my house and taking my silver? Whoever stole my silver, they shall be cursed. And she repeats the curse in his ears, it says. He hears her say it, and that scares him. He starts to think about, wait a second, my mom just called down a curse on whoever stole her silver. So we see that Micah, he, he returns the money. He'd rather return the money to his mom and deal with the repercussions of saying, I took it, than to be cursed. So we see that Micah isn't a really good guy, but we also see that he's not completely evil, right? He's not that bad of a guy either. Because if he was a good guy, he, he would have never taken it in the first place. And if he was a completely evil guy, he would have just said, who's my mom to call down a curse on anybody? I'm keeping the money. He wouldn't have taken it, right, if he was a good guy. So we find Micah in this spot where we don't know much about him. We don't know much about his story. But we do know that at some point he was enticed to steal from his own mom, and he did it. So he only returns the money because he hears her call down a curse. There's no softness in him up to this point. There's nowhere in him where he thinks, you know what, I shouldn't steal from my mother, let alone that much money from my mother. But that's not how he thinks. The only time that we see him actually have any kind of softness to return it is because he's afraid of what might happen to him through this curse that she called out. So he doesn't have a whole lot of character. He's just afraid of his consequences. Now, we see his mom automatically be really gracious and forgiving. But she doesn't look for real repentance from her son. 
There's a whole lot of depth in this narrative that I think is important for us to break apart and look at. And this is the first thing I want to see. The first thing is we see a guy who is more concerned about his consequences of his actions than the heart behind why he did it. He never stopped to say, why did I steal from my mother? He just did it. And then whenever he's afraid of the repercussions that might befall him, he decides, I better give it back now. Then when he gives it back, the mom right away, the mom right away says, blessed be my son by the Lord. That's the only time we see the Lord's name mentioned, right? Blessed be my son by the Lord. She doesn't say, son, why did you take my money? She doesn't say, we need to talk, son. She didn't say, hey, what's going on? What's going on in your life that you felt you needed to steal from me? She doesn't ask any questions about his character, and she doesn't ask him to seek any kind of repentance. And, she, and without any full repentance, there can't be full reconciliation, right? Do you think this mom is going to trust him around her money? Hopefully not. He's not remorseful about this, and she doesn't ask him to be. See, he didn't want to go through the painful process of repentance, and he didn't want to go through the painful process of reconciliation. So in this tension that is obviously entered into this family relationship, there's no real uh, desire to deal with the real issue here. He says, oh, he was honest. I'll celebrate the one good thing he did. May the Lord's blessing fall on my son. He never had to examine why he took it in the first place. The grace he receives in this moment is a cheap form of grace. It's like the generic version of grace. It's like a white box and black lettering. It just says grace. That's the form of grace that Micah gets from his mom. It's not a full restorative grace where he can see God in it, where he sees someone take the ugliness, the depth, and the horribleness of his sin and look at it, look him in the eye and say, I love you anyway and I forgive you. That is a full grace. That's name brand grace. That's not like apple dapples instead of buying apple jacks, right? That is legit grace. And what he receives here is cheap imitation grace. And he receives it in a cheap way because he never saw his need for it in the first place. Now listen, I want to say this bluntly. A condemning and a punishing parent will hurt a child. If we condemn and we punish our kids and lord over them, we will hurt them. But we will equally damage them if we make excuses for them and we enable them. And that's exactly what's happening in this moment. She makes an excuse for him and she enables him and says, you know what, Let, I'm just going to sell. Actually, I'm so happy that you gave me my money back. We're going to make some more cataclysmically bad decisions here. That's essentially what happens. So let's keep going. She gets the money back, and she wants to give it to the Lord. So listen with me here, because there's some things that jumped out at me. I dedicate the silver to the Lord. This is halfway through verse 3. From my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now look at how fast that got derailed. She, she gives him, she, he gives the money back. She says, oh, may blessings fall on my son. I want to give all this to the Lord. And I'm going to give it back to my son because he's so responsible with my money. And I'm going to tell him to take it and make an idol with it. There's all kinds of red flags here, right? I mean, I hope you see them because they're very clear. So this is bizarre to me. This is, this is odd to me. 
This woman knows enough about God to name her son the image of Yahweh. She knows enough about God that she gives thanks to God for the money in the first place. But then when it comes time to give praise to the God who enabled her to have this money in the first place, one, she doesn't want to point her son back to God. She wants to actually say, I'm going to give this all to you, and I'm going to ask you to create an idol for me. Now, I want you to listen back to Exodus, unless we forget. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, listen to what God says to Moses. Exodus chapter 20, I got my pages stuck together here, give me a second. Verses 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. My bookmark covering up the whole sentence here. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's pretty blunt. You should not ever form in your own hands or in anybody else's hands a likeness of me to be worshipped instead of me or in place of me. And he covers all his bases here. God says it shouldn't be, you should not form anything that is in the heaven above or on earth beneath. And in case that's not clear enough for you, it shouldn't be anything that lives in the water either. That pretty much covers it all, right? It can't be in the air, it can't be on the ground, and it can't be in the water. That pretty much covers all your bases. Listen also what he says again. This is echoed in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4 when he says this. Therefore, watch yourselves. This is God. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So if the Exodus passage wasn't specific enough, it gets broken down in a whole new way in the Deuteronomy 4 passage when he says it can't. It cannot be something that you carve. It cannot be male or female. It can't be any animal on earth or a bird that flies or anything that creeps on the ground or any fish in the water. It can't be the sun. It can't be the moon. It can't be the stars. He's making it abundantly clear that there isn't anything in this universe that compares to him in reception of our worship. But he's also warning his people that you will be tempted to create for yourself an idol. You will be tempted to create for yourself something that represents me. Why would God say that? Why would God God say, 
don't do that. It's something that we accept, I think, but yet I rarely take the time to say, but why? Why is God trying to protect me from that? This story with Micah and his mom and the idol give us a moment to just sort of pause and look a little deeper into that question. So if we make an image or we try to depict God in an item, we immediately reveal part of God's nature in that item and immediately hide another part of it. Because you can't wrap up God's likeness completely in an object, and he knows that. That's why he told us not to do it. It's like in Exodus when they're at the foot of the mountain and Aaron says, go gather up all your gold and we're going to melt it down into a God that represents God. Really, quite honestly, if we're being honest, infantile and maybe unwise, but the intentions aren't completely horrible for Aaron in this moment. We'll cut him a little bit of slack because what he's trying to do is get his people to worship God in the moment that the, that the, the law is being given to Moses. He's trying to get all the Israelites to worship God. And he doesn't want them to scatter. He doesn't want them to complain. He doesn't want them to whine. So he's going to gather them around something that, that signifies God. So everyone, go get your gold and bring it to me. We're going to melt it down. We're going to make a calf. And that calf is going to represent God. This wasn't a new God they created. It was just a symbol for them to worship God. And it could, it, it could symbolize God's power, but it couldn't show his love, and it couldn't show his grace, and it couldn't show his righteousness, and it couldn't show his, his mercy, and it couldn't show his jealousness, and it couldn't show his anger, and it couldn't show his other attributes. It could only represent what it represented. Do you see how the human heart can be drawn to a series of gods to represent different things when we start down this rabbit trail? When I was in uh, high school, I went on a trip with uh, a youth conference I went on where they took us to a Hindu temple. I believe Hindus have over 1,100 different gods that they worship, and they all symbolize different things. So when you come into their temple, you have to take your shoes off because you're on holy ground, and you are, you are going to see statues that represent these gods. And every, if, if there's some need that you have, you need to be able to, to give a gift in homage to this god. So there are flowers, arrangements, and candles, and things like that set at the base of these statues. They all represent something different. Why? Because you can't wrap up all the attributes of a holy God in one physical thing that we make. If you're not capable, and you're not, by the way, if you're not capable of comprehending the majesty of God and all of his attributes at one time in your brain, how do you think you can make it into a physical representation that you can set on a shelf? So that's the problem with idolatry. That's the core problem with idolatry. If you painted a picture of God, what attributes would you pick? If you painted a picture of God today, what attributes of God would you pick? Think about that. Whatever is going on in your life today, and the attributes of God that you are learning about today, or receiving from God today, help you paint that picture today. 
But if something horrendous happens in your path in the next day or two, that picture that you painted on Sunday is drastically different than the one you paint on Wednesday. Why? Because your picture of God changed over the next three days. Who changed? Your picture of God or God himself? Your picture did. Your understanding of who he is changed. God did not change. So the danger of idolatry, what he's warning his people way back when the law was given, is that there's no way for you, a made being, to create a made being that represents an unmade being. You can't do it. It's impossible. But you will be tempted to because it's going to be easier for you. When we have a picture of God that we created ourselves, it shows that an inward spirit that doesn't want to submit to God as He is in His fullness. It shows the ones we want to submit to. It chooses the attributes in the order uh, to, to which we are ready to submit to them. Have you ever seen a picture of God painted, hanging up in like, I would always say my grandma's house or Meg's grandma's house because she was a Catholic woman. She had pictures of Jesus everywhere. But I've never seen a picture of Jesus or a picture of God representative in, on canvas or black velvet uh, that, was, that was depicted as like the angry God that people want to claim he is. Why? We always see a smiling Jesus with perfectly coiffed hair, wonderfully manicured beard, very handsome. His clothes are pristine. And he's always standing in a garden next to a door that doesn't have a knob on it, right? That's the picture of Jesus that I saw most often. Or, or just the painting of his face. But whoever painted that picture had a perfect, had a, had, a, had a representation in his or her mind of what Jesus was, what he looked like, what attributes stood out to them. And then they created the picture out of that. Because we don't know what he looked like, right? We don't have anywhere in Scripture gives us a description of what he looked like. So we, what do we use? We use what we know people looked like back then. We use our own imagination. We use the attributes that describe him to create a picture for ourselves. You all have a picture in your mind of what Jesus looks like. Maybe in your mind he looks like Jim Caviezel from The Passion. I don't know. But we all do that. And what God is warning us about in the Old Testament law is that you will be prone to do that with an idol. You'll be prone to wrap up all of my attributes and who I am in the moment that you're in into a God. And it will not cover all the attributes of who I am. And it will not be sufficient to you because it will not be me. It might be a representation of me, but that falls short. The classic battle between Protestant and Roman Catholicism that goes back into the Reformation time frame was the Catholics saying that you I mean the Catholics saying that you should have representations of God so that you can see it manifested and you should have the statues and you should have the things you can look at because you need to be able to see it. And the Protestants over here saying, no, 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 if you see it, it's going to give you a picture of God that's incomplete. And that battle still wages on. But when we create something to represent God, it is insufficient 
all across the board. But this, is, this isn't the, the primary problem. The real issue in, in worshiping images is the desire to shape and revise God in the way that we want him to look. If you take it back to the story, what does Micah do? Whenever they get the money back, whenever Micah owns up to it and mom gets the money back, right? Now, here's the remarkable part of this story. Let me just pause for a second. This woman has 1,100 silver pieces. All of a sudden, they're missing. She has them. I don't know what she was going to spend them on, but she has them. Then she finds out her idiot son steals them from her, and then he owns up to it when she calls down a curse. And she immediately, this 1,100 silver pieces, she wants to dedicate to God because her son's so great. There's all kinds of foolishness playing out here, right? So we don't know what her original plan for these 1,100 silver pieces were, but I tend to think that if she was going to make a god out of them, she would have done it by now. But now what she wants to do is to celebrate the getting back of her wealth by building an idol. She wants to celebrate what she has by building an idol. And it's a half-hearted worship. It's, it's claiming that she wants it to be God. But look at what Micah does with this. He takes 200. She gives him 200 pieces of silver. Now, remember earlier in the passage when she said, I want to give you my 1,100 pieces. She implies there that it is all going to go to an idol. By the time it's time to pony up the dough and actually cast the idol, she gives 200 pieces of it. You ought to be able to make a decent idol for 200 pieces of silver, right? You don't need to give you all 1,100 of it. Micah takes it. He gets a silversmith to make it. First they form it out of wood and then they cast it. So just so you know, so the wood, it's not two idols, it's one. The wood was the, what it's going to look like, and then they cast the silver over top of that so that they know what they want it to look like. Then Micah builds himself a church, makes his son a priest. He ordains his son as a priest, and he says, this is where we will worship now. That's what he does at the end of this. And it was in the house of Micah, starting at the verse 4, starting at verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, and household gods, meaning he had others, right? And ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. So this is all kinds of weird, right? We can look at this and we can say, none of this makes any sense to me. None of this makes a lick of sense to me. But the problem is, the problem that they have is the same problem we have. See, what we do is we like to make, we like to sort of subjectify morality. We like to just sort of make it subjective. Instead of looking at God's law, we try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. So let's say we have two Christians that are just straight up living in sin. The circumstances can be yours to create. And they're, they're doing this, and, and you can say, well, why? Why are you doing that? Because your view of morality is different than theirs. And they can say, hey, listen, we feel at peace about this. And so there are objective commands in Scripture that tell us what to stay away from. And as humans, we want to make those objective commands subjective. We want to take the objective commands that say, do this, don't do this, because God's saying, this will deter your worship of me. 
And when God says he's a jealous God, that's, that's not a negative statement. That is a good statement. He's saying that I created you and I am all sufficient. Therefore, nothing should take my place. Here's what I'm going to put in place for you to follow so that you cannot let anything else deter from your worship of me. Because anything that you allow to deter from your worship of me will, re- will derail you from pursuing me. And when the time comes for you to obey me, you will question me and most likely you won't do it. Sound familiar to the Israelite story? And so we have the Israelites living in sin, and when if you were to push against them and say, why did you choose that? Why did you do that? Why did you not obey? They'd say, hey, listen, we have a form of God. We have a complete peace about this. Why? Because they took the objective commands of God, and they turned them into subjective issues for them to debate over. So now we allow ourselves to interpret God's law. We put ourselves in the spot where we get to interpret what God means when he says certain things. You ever heard someone do that? They quote the word of God, and it's a very poor representation of it. And they say, well, what it means, what the interpretation in Scripture, what that means is. But no, what it means is what it says. We go back to the Old Testament, and we know what God said about idolatry. He didn't do that because he didn't want us to receive joy. He wanted us to do that so that we could receive joy. Because if you create an idol by your own hands, you will tend to worship aspects of God and appreciate aspects of God. And when you start appreciating worship aspects of God, it starts to turn all of his commands into subjective things that whenever the things you do obey only fit into the subjective reality you've created in that version of God. Is this too heady? Does that make sense? So we create this timeline where we have God here. This is how he gave himself to us in his fullness and his completeness. And then he said in his word, do not create idols for yourselves. Do not try to cast something yourself that wraps up some of my attributes in the name of worshiping me. Stick to me and only me. But we didn't listen. And when we did that, we created a timeline split. So now we have the objective commands of God that kept going this way, and we took the attributes of God we liked and came up here, and that created a subjective commands of God timeline where we get to decide what's right and what's wrong based on our interpretation of God's character and based on what we know of God. And that's a dangerous place to be because we can say, well, I prayed about it, I have a peace about it. But you only have a peace about it because you're looking at God's commands from a subjective reality, not an objective one. And when we look at God from a subjective reality, we make decisions like Samson made. We make decisions like all the other judges made. Why? Because their view of God was incomplete. And it shows up in the historical timeline of God's people all over the place. But in this story in particular, it is like a case study on why idolatry is so damaging. It got passed down generationally to this guy and his mom. And that's how they responded to God in worship. Is in a subjective reality. What we're going to see next week is what happens when that idol, that thing that Micah gave his hope to is taken from him and what that causes in his heart. What that causes for him to react against and do. It's a slippery slope. 
And it's a hard reality. But this is what it looks like when a society gets to do whatever they think is right. This is what it looks like. It doesn't have to mean a conscious rejection of God. It doesn't have to mean that, that there's that doesn't require a calling on God or, or religious activity. Religious activity, if you look, is spreading throughout chapter 17. If you look ahead for next week, you'll see what I mean. Religious activity is actually spreading. It's growing. But how does this end in verse 6? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why? Because their objective commands from God were no longer being followed holistically. They became subjective. They became a part of a timeline they created for themselves. In fact, uh, in chapter 17, we see that... that uh, People building shrines in their homes make them actually very committed to whatever attribute of God they found important in that moment. See, we have faith in God. That means a whole God, a whole picture of God. Idols are dangerous. And guys, we create them all the time. All the time. And I wanted to lay that groundwork because next week's going to be harder to listen to. Next week, we're going to see what Micah does when his idol gets taken from him. And when we ask the question, what, would, what, what could be taken from me that would make me act like that? Then you'll know what your idol is. And for Micah, in his mind, it was a really good thing. It was a thing that represented God. It was a thing that was good to him, but it wasn't full and it wasn't complete and it wasn't God. So I encourage you to read the rest of chapter 17 and into 18 for next week. I encourage you to read the rest of 17, all of 18, before you come back next week. Because you're going to start to see what Micah does, what he reacts when something that he has created as a god, as an idol, is taken from him. So I'll just close with this. Guaranteed there are things in our lives that we have created an idol out of. Guaranteed we have created a subjective timeline of obedience. I'm sure we've done that. Where we've looked at an incomplete picture of God and made rules for ourselves. And I think if the story of Judges tells us nothing else, it tells us how dangerous it is when that's our reality. So I pray that as we wrestle with that this week, that it becomes very real to us in our hearts and in our lives, what we have created as an idol and how God wants to destroy that so that you can get a complete picture of who he is, not just the partial one that you've created. God, thank you for your love and grace and kindness. Thank you for giving it to us in abundance. Thank you that even though we are prone to wonder, you are prone to stay firm. Not only prone to, that's who you are. So as we step out into our reality this week, I pray that we can wrestle with what those things are in our lives that we've created a timeline that is unhealthy and not a complete picture of who you are and draw us back into your presence. Lord, till our hearts and prepare us for your word more and more. In your name we pray.
Amen.